0: Discover the Mediterranean secret to optimal health and longevity with GMT-23 Greek Mountain Tea from Terry Naturally. These capsules are stronger than a cup of brewed tea and support overall health, including liver health, digestion, and cognitive function. Now, for the first time ever, this botanical is available in supplemental form in the United States. Find GMT-23 Greek Mountain Tea at your local health food store or terrynaturivitamins.com.
1: These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
0: It's been said that it's safe to say that anyone who's ever sung along with the radio, watched television, attended a concert, or enjoyed a movie has at some time been touched by Bruce Bellin's talent. Now, when he sang his first solo in church at the age of four, his dream was born, and he wanted to be a singer, and he never wavered from pursuing his dream. Now, growing up as a preacher's kid, miracles happened, like his father moving the family from Chicago to Pastor Church. Of all places... Hollywood, California, because that's where stars are born. So how does one actually describe Bruce Bellin? Entertainer, singer, songwriter, recording and concert artist? What about screenwriter, actor, director, network executive, public speaker, even a playwright, producer, a voiceover performer, a radio host, a humorist, even an author? Well, you'd be right, but that's just part of his incredible story. Bruce Bellin's memoir, Icons, Idols, and Idiots of Hollywood, My Adventures in America's First Boy Band. That's right. The first boy band wasn't the Beach Boys or the Beatles or NSYNC or the Backstreet Boys. It was the Four Preps. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome the last surviving member of America's First Boy Band, the one and the only, the legend himself, Bruce (laughs) Bellin, to the show. Welcome, Bruce.
1: Thank you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, gosh, gee, I'm, thank you for the nice words. <laughs> well, you are very, very welcome, and I have to say, I loved your book, and oh, you you lived a storied career, and I'm sure you could write a sequel to it. Well, you know, I've, I've
1: got it in the, in the works, as a matter of fact, ready to go if and when this first book is successful, I've got what happens to me after the preps disband in 69, so... There's a lot more story to tell. But the first thing I had to tell was the having the dream born at four years of age. And suddenly, you know, a few years later, here I am in Hollywood and I'm a pop idol. So that's that's the book I've got for now. And that's going to going to sustain us for a while, I think.
0: Well, you know, as I was reading your book, your father was a minister. Um, what are some of the things you learned from him that you never forgot?
1: The main thing i he taught me was that i was a small kid i was a small fry i had buttermilk white hair and i was shorter than everybody else so i got picked on a lot by bullies at school and i came home one day really feeling like a real loser i told my mom i you know but it happened i went in my bedroom he came and knocked on the door and came in he was a very charismatic man a very elegant well-spoken refined man and he came in and said you mind if i talk to you for a minute and i said no he said you know something you can't stop believing in yourself because those bullies are, are bullying you. He said, you've got to believe in yourself. you got a thing way down deep inside of you, like a little silver ball bearing. And that's your ego and your self-belief and your self-confidence. Nobody can ever get to that. They can chip away at it as much as they want, but it's indestructible. It's down there in your gut. And as long as you believe in yourself, you'll never lose it. That has sustained me over the years. So when I'm doubting myself or I'm not sure I can meet the challenge or whatever, I think with that's... Call on the ball bearing. That's that measure of self belief. If you don't believe in yourself, ain't nobody else going to believe in you. So it's a very important factor. It was for me in, in maintaining my self confidence when the whole world was saying, "Go away. We don't care about your music." So it, it sustained me through my life.
0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, there's your life lesson for for today. Be aware that you have a ball bearing inside of you that no one can break. And keep that in mind. And Bruce, I love that story in your book. And uh, I'm going to take that with me as well, because it is it is so true. And then your mother, um, as you described her, that she lavished you with love, approval, and encouragement. What did uh, that mean to you growing up dreaming of Hollywood? Well, she sort of
1: became my ally and my confidant when I began to dream be about a, a career in show business. Uh, And, of course, my dad was at the same time dreaming about my career as a gospel singer. We were to go out on the road and evangelize and have revival meetings, and I'd do the singing and he'd do the preaching. So from an early age when I started to sing at four or five in church, that was his dream. He began laying his plans, and he was not a man without determination. So he was determined at what was going to happen, and my mother would take me aside when he was around and teach me pop songs, because she was a little bit of a rebel. She had been kind of a flapper during her, her youth, and my dad was a very serious seminary student, so she kind of brought him alive. He had She had great joie de vivre and, and spirit, so she would sit me at the piano every day from age four on for at least an hour each day, singing my lungs out. I sang, stout give us some men who are stout hearted you know i'm seven years old and i'm singing elson red eddie heroic songs so my dad finally got upset with her he said you should be teaching him sacred songs not just all these pop songs so she made a deal with my dad she said i will teach him one sacred song for every pop song he said okay fine so soon i was singing the old rugged cross And shrimp boats is a coming, were in my repertoire. So she was a strong influence on me. She had a wonderful spirit. I never saw my mom without a laugh and a smile. She had a a motto on her wall in her kitchen that said, laughter is the weapon of the angels. And she knew how to wield that weapon very effectively when it was needed. She was an incredible influence on me. My father was as well, but in a more serious way. She was about loving life, loving music and letting it uh, be your, your expression.
0: Well, I, I found it endearing. Uh, your, your parents seem to be a perfect pair for one another because, because they really evened each other out. And it seems like you were born with the right set of parents at the right <laughs> time. Because, I mean, like, what went through your mind when your, your, your preacher father took a pastoral position at a church in West Hollywood? It's a long way from Chicago. Were you jumping up and down with joy?
1: Oh, you know, I was stunned, first of all. First of all, by the time I I was 10 at the time that my dad got the position to move to West Hollywood. But by that time, I was absolutely obsessed with Hollywood and show business. My mom used to read movie magazines, which my dad didn't approve of, so she'd hide them under the bed. Hide them, you know, like he didn't know they were there. And I would crawl under the bed and just devour movie magazines, page after page of, modern screen photo play all the old uh, movie magazines and they kept talking about this place called Hollywood where my idol Spencer Tracy lived where my idol Mickey Rooney lived where my my hot stuff Lotta Turner lived this place called Hollywood well all I knew it was a distant place where stars lived and one night my brother five years older than I walked in the bedroom after dinner and said dad's got a new job we're moving to Hollywood it, 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 did you did you say Hollywood? Yeah, Hollywood. And we're each going to have our own bedroom because we were in a little room with uh, bunk beds in Chicago. So you know, from that minute on, the dreams really started to spiral and and grow and accelerate. And on the way out on Route 66, we'd stop in a motel at night. No Holiday ends yet, so it was a little mom and pop hotel somewhere in Wisconsin or whatever. And my dad would. Drill us on where we were going and on how, how we should behave when we got to Hollywood and what we were going to see, and I just, I mean, I hyperventilated. He kept saying Hollywood, I kept saying we're really going there. So that was, that was just an enormous uh, thrill for me. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't believe it until we got off 66 and we're driving down Hollywood Boulevard and stopped at Hollywood and Vine, and then I said, oh yeah, it's really here. And I looked up and there's this sign on the hill that says Hollywoodland. They hadn't taken the land off the end of Hollywood yet, so it was still said Hollywood would. Well, now I know I'm here. There's the sign, and here's Hollywood and Vine. I'm really here. Let's go.
0: <laughs> you know, I and I love the way that uh, you wrote the book. It was so easy to follow along. Um, and ladies and gentlemen, as you read Bruce's book, you visually can put yourself into his shoes and and live, that, live his life along each and every page that's why i loved your book so much oh, but let's get into something that uh, well it made you famous as well as three other uh, gentlemen and what motivated you to form a vocal group for the 1954 student talent show at hollywood high and how did you come up with the name the four preps okay
1: well first of all there's a talent show every year at hollywood high and of course talent scouts would attend because that school cranked out an awful lot of stars over here, Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland. So uh, we were, I, the school bulletin said the next day, 35 girls, no guys showed up to audition. Come on, there's got to be some guys out there that could do something. So I went to Glenn Larson, who'd been my pal since grammar school, and said, 35 girls? That, and we've been wanting to make records. Let's, let's form a group. We grabbed two guys in the heist, in the school choir bought a shaboom at the record store after school that day learned shaboom that night auditioned the next day and because probably because we're the only guys we got on the show now we were set to do two numbers 20 minutes apart and glenn larson and i became partners and through our entire relationship we're highly competitive with each other so now we're waiting backstage to go on for our very first number we're four guys we don't have any name we're just four guys who want to perform So, as the MC, our student body president, is about to step out on stage, he turns to me and says, What what do I call you guys? Just had no. So he goes up to the microphone and says, Now, ladies and gentlemen, the Bruce Belland Quartet. Well, Glenn shot me a look (laughs) that I would get many years there there forward of competitiveness. Oh, really? I don't think so. So we did the first number. We came off and were higher than a kite because they're screaming. They loved it. So we got off stage and said, okay, we got 20 minutes till the next number. We got 20 minutes to pick a name. It sure ain't gonna be the Bruce Belland Quartet. So we said, what did we do? We, it was uh, the four groups were very big, four coins, four labs, four races, four freshmen. So we said, let's something to do with school, four classmates, four scholars, four graduates. Well, there was a play being done each night in that auditorium and there was a newspaper that was a prop in the play sitting over on a nearby table as we're struggling for a name and was over to the sports section and the headline said, Preps Sports Results, meaning the high school scores. That was it. Preps, that's it. So 20 minutes later, we were the four preps. <laughs>
0: wow. And and then the legacy starts from there. Well, how how did the preps get discovered and uh, why did your capital records contract actually make history?
1: Well, we, uh, we did a show at UCLA for a sorority dance when we graduated from Hollywood high and we're desperate to get a, a contract. Uh, we sang at anything. I mean, we, we sang at sock hops and car washes and bar mitzvahs and hayrides trying to get discovered. And we did a lot of showcases with Richie Valens. We did it with Jan and Dean. We did it with the righteous brothers, uh, Trini Lopez, all these struggling artists like us trying to get a break. And, uh, We got a tape recording of that show we did at the ucla sorority dance and i began to make the rounds on sunset to all the record companies well you know i'm 18 years old and i look about 12 so i'm walking into all these record offices i have a tape of my group would you listen never you know how naive can you be i figured that was the way it was then didn't work so i came home lower than you know a frog's belly and i'm sitting in my room and my dad came in and said not gotten any breaks yet i said not yet he said ball bearing don't forget the ball bearing so i summed up my self-belief and went out a second day and got turned out again and the next day i'm at my girlfriend's house and she's got a girlfriend uh that's a model and is represented by a manager up on sunset strip she said gee you know he represents uh some pretty big artists maybe he'd be interested well she gave me his his address Name was Mel Shower, 9110 Sunset Boulevard. And I dropped, him. she said, Use my name, it may help. She was a beautiful model. She did a lot of work for him. So I walked in, used her name, and he came out. He was tall, craggy faced, slim, slender man. He reminded me of Abraham Lincoln. And he was that honest and stable. He came out, said, Come on in, sure, smoking his pipe, leaned back, put the tape on of our show and listen. He smiled a couple times at the funny parts. He liked the singing. I thought, is he being nice to this kid that just came in off the street, or is he really impressed? So he took it off when it was through, and he said, "Do you mind if I if I keep this for a couple of days?" I said, "Well, no." He said, "Okay, let me uh, let me see what I can do." He did not mention to me at that time <laughs> that he represented a little act called Les Paul and Mary Ford. So, do you think he had entree to the Capitol Tower? So that was on a Wednesday. And on a Friday, I'm leaving the house to go to my job in Beverly Hills, delivering flowers. When the phone rings, I run back in the house. I pick it up. It's Mel Shower saying, yeah, Capitol wants to sign you fellas to a recording contract. So I went through my deliveries that day with the flowers in the total days. I don't remember any of it. All I could think was what kind of car am I going to get? Well, I knew it was going to be a Corvette. That was already decided. That was a little ways in the distance, but that's how we got the break. I just happened to come into his office, play it for him. He went to Capitol and they, they were very aware at that time that the youth movement was getting bigger and bigger, teenage record buyers and top 40 radio. So we were supposed to be the answer to this new thing called rock and roll. The irony, of course, is that we're not rock and roll. We're not even vaguely rock and roll, although we tried and made a couple of woeful attempts at rock and roll, but that's how it all happened. Yeah, there we were in the time, first time we go to the Capitol tower, four kids who grew up in its shadow and went to Hollywood High, we would look at it every day and dream. And suddenly we're in the elevator going up to the top floor of the Capitol Tower.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm wondering, Bruce, because you grew up in church and back in the day, and even still today, there's a lot of artists that have grown up singing in church. But back in the 50s, uh, and here, here's the four preps. Did you pull anything from some of the well-known gospel quartets back in the day to maybe formulate on how y'all performed on stage? Because I know some of the, the gospel quartets had a little bit of uh, comedy bits in the, in the middle of their songs. Did you pull from that? No
1: question of it. No question of it. And one of my biggest influences was a group called the Golden Gate Quartet for wonderful black gentlemen from the Bay Area. Uh, and... And our bass, and we would sit and listen to him, and he'd try and get all the rumbling bass parts and stuff, and their humor and their energy. In fact, one of the, my favorite tracks of all the tracks we cut was Swing Down Chariot, Stop and Let Me Ride. Swing Down Chariot, Stop and Let Me Ride. So we got a lot of influence from the black gospel groups. Uh, in my dad's church, we had a very active youth group. We probably had 25 or 30 kids in it. And many times on Sunday night, after our Sunday service at our church, we'd pile into the school bus and drive down to Watts, to South Central L.A., to the St. Paul Baptist Choir, the Echoes of Eden Choir with the John L. Bradham. And they all open, I'm so glad that Jesus lifted me. And one of the guys in our band, our bass, Ed Cobb, was so influenced by that black gospel music that years later, as the record producer and the songwriter, he, that was his, his forte. He, he produced a love letters stray from your heart with Ketty Lester, which is a very much it's a gospel, black gospel feel. Uh, Standells with the dirty water. He wrote Tainted Love. So he, along with the rest of us, was very influenced by what we picked up in church with those gospel. That was a great question.
0: i would never been asked that before. That was a good one. Well, you're very welcome. And well, I have to say, I have to bring and give some credit to my father-in-law because he grew up with a ton of gospel quartets and new okay. James, James Blackwood personally. And I had the opportunity to meet J.D. Sumner and uh, oh, well, Richard Sturban and uh, my gosh, Hovi Lister and ah. you know, uh, Jay Cass, the list goes on. But for the four preps, did y'all ever come in contact with people like the Jordanaires or the Stamps? Uh, not until later in our career, I, I finally met the Jordanaires. But there again,
1: I, you know, I, I played rectors constantly. We all did. So not only the gospel groups, but the Four Lads, the Four Aces, the Four Freshmen were my personal idols. We listened to, to all of them and learned from all of them. And as I said in the book, as you know. We were determined from day one to be entertainers, to do comedy, to do satire, to do parody, and to sing very well. So that was always our goal from the start. And with me being the clown and the ham that I am, and I'm 5'6", and Ed, our bass was 6'5", you got to do comedy. I mean, it's a natural, just physically looking at us. It's funny already. So, Well, how, uh,
0: well, how did y'all end up being, uh, in a way, I guess, uh, the background vocals for Ricky Nelson?
1: Well, we went to high school. I went to high school with David. As I said in the book, by then I had delivered flowers and newspapers in Beverly Hills. So I was used to seeing a celebrity standing next to me now and then, but never saw one stark naked. But there was one standing next to me in the boys' locker room in the gym, stark naked, and it was the stark naked David Nelson. By then, their show had been on a year or so. It was Red Hot, The Adventures of here And we became fast friends, David and I. He was a quarterback in the junior varsity and I ran on the track team, so we saw each other a lot. And now and then I'd get invited up the hill from Hollywood High when school was out to their beautiful home on Camino Palmero, Ozzie and Harriet, and shoot a few baskets and then hitchhike home to my bungalow in West Hollywood from their palatial mansion. But then through David, of course, I met Ricky and the minute we met, we realized what we had in common was we both wanted to make records. We both wanted to be rec- recording stars. So we hit it off. We would sit for hours listening to Fats Domino and 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 a Little Richard, and um, you know that was that was our diet. That's all we were consumed by. So we got to know Ricky. And once he got his recording contract, his manager called our manager and said, "Would the boys consider coming on the show as regulars, as his fraternity brothers and backup singers?" Ricky Nelson loved everything about Elvis. So when Elvis showed up on one television show with the carved or tooled leather guitar case with his name on it, two two weeks later, Ricky had a guitar case leather with his name on it. Because as a kid celebrity, all he had to do was say, gee, I'd like a drum set, You'd boom. And then in two hours, with was a new drum set. So Elvis had a quartet behind him. He wanted a quartet behind him. So that's how we started. And the very first shot we did on the show itself was uh, Bye Bye Love by the Everly Brothers. And the switchboard lit up. The fan letters came, you know, crowd rushing in, uh, complimenting us and Rick on his new sound and his new group. So we were off and running. So from then on, they started to figure out the writers. How do we work a song in here? We have one where we get... Spend the night in jail. Me serenade the jailers in the jail. We, I'll be singing the fraternity dance. We singing the fundraiser for Harriet's Girl Women's Club. So, they began to work us more and more into the scenes and in the comedy sketches and so forth. And then finding out what a hambo and I am, they started to give me funny lines. And they all Rick used to say the reason they hired me was because in a two shot, Rick was the the deadpan of all time. So you know he said, oh wow, what are we gonna do? The Dean is coming. So I would stand next to him and go, what are we going to do? The Dean is coming. Oh, wow. And say, gee, Rick's getting more expression in his face these days. So he kind of borrowed my energy in the two shots. But it was a great experience. And more and more, they began to use me as an individual. Ultimately, the preps had to resign from the group because we were too busy touring and recording. But between preps engagements, I would squeeze in appearances on the Ozzie and Harriet show. I'd, I became Rick's roommate in college. And he's confident about girl problems and stuff like that.
0: Well, Bruce, you know I, I, when I was reading the book, and because there's a large port of, part of your book that covers Ricky Nelson, Ozzy and Harriet, and here you guys signed a record contract with Capitol Records, then you end up on Ozzy and Harriet. And I know that back in the day, you know the whole point was get a song on the radio. Hopefully, you have a song that's a hit on the radio. But in a way, did it feel like you were able to double dip because you had the record contract, but now you're getting television exposure that a lot of music groups never had. You know that, that's that's true, and
1: time and again, we would find ourselves in a position, rather a unique position, of uh, guesting on the show. And for example, there were so many competitive groups uh, later, the Beach Boys, the Letterman. None of them were in Gidget. We were in Gidget. We were in a movie, you know, on screen doing a number. We were on Ozzie and Harriet. So, yeah, I mean, so much of it I say in the book, and having read it, you know how many times I use the word lucky. I mean, to lucky to end up at Hollywood High, lucky to meet Ricky Nelson, lucky he starts to record, lucky he thinks of calling us, you know, lucky uh, the guy who wrote Gidget the books, his daughter was a four preps fan. So she said, why don't you put them in the movie? So time and again, we would find ourselves in these unique unparalleled situations for, for performing groups like us. I mean, the four lads didn't make movies and there we were. Uh, yeah. Luck,
0: luck, 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 luck. <laughs> well, so you sign the, the contract with Capitol records. You end up on Ozzie and Harriet, you end up in Gidget. Was all this before the hit 26 miles? No. Uh, all of it
1: was before 26 miles, except for Gidget. Gidget came in because of 26 miles, being a beach-related uh, uh, project. They wanted somebody with that beach image. Uh, no, the, Ozzie and Harriet and another, we had two agents at MCA, two young agents who fell in love with our act. One of them was a man named Jerry Parencio who well, you, knowing media as you do, will probably, know, he, he, he built Univision. He became one of the richest men in America. But when we first started out, he was booking us for $250 a night. He had just gotten out of the service himself, and he was the fledgling agent. Our other agent was a man named Ned Tannen went on to head Paramount Studios and made movies like the Bruce Blues Brothers, American Graffiti, Crocodile Dundee, Fatal Attraction. So these two young hustling agents who had all kinds of big plans of their own were booking these four young guys who had all kinds of plans of their own was a good. And they actually got us booked into opening for Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy at the Coconut Grove nightclub in Los Angeles. Now, the further irony of that is, we had attended that Coconut Grove about a year before for our senior prom in rented white dinner jackets, hoping we could pay the bill when it came at the end of the evening. And now a little over a year later, we are on that stage performing for the Hollywood crowd and opening night for Edgar Bergen, who was a legend, as you know. Every star in the world was there. I mean, Esther Williams, uh, Just uh, it was so much fun for this. We hadn't had a hit, who knew who we were? But we got out of that. We got a review that looked like we paid for it. The four preps are destined to go far. They got all the requisites: beautiful voices, great comedy timing, fetching personalities. Without a hit, now they use this. There's two young hotshot agents, and they go to the Ford Motor Company, who was putting together a special to introduce their new wonder car, the Edsel. Pause for laugh. The Edsel, and they get us on the show with. Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Bob Hope, Louis Armstrong, Rosemary Clooney, and the and and the four the four preps, and they get us equal billing on the crawl at the front. Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, and there's our, then the four preps. So we haven't had a hit, and we've done the Coconut Grove, and we've done Crosby and Sinatra. Shortly after that, we got lucky, and Twenty Six Miles hit the charts, and we were on the way. And that's why then the producers of Gidget said, well, we got to get him in the movie. They're all about the beach scene in Southern California, so let's let's get him.
0: Well, you met so many people. And I mean, ladies and gentlemen, the, pe- the famous people that Bruce met as a kid is mind-boggling. I mean, I, I read the stories about Gene Kelly, uh, Jimmy Durante. But then you just mentioned the, you know, the Edsel show with Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Louis Armstrong, Rosemary Clooney. But what I loved about the story in the book is when you walk into the room and you see Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, were you starstruck? Or is that an understatement? (laughs) I, 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 as I said in the book, I kept waking from my alarm clock to
1: wake me up from this dream that I'm having. Because, and, and when we walked in, you know, obviously we we're a little uptight and a little, totally intimidated. And then how we, how's this going to go? Well, the minute we opened that big studio door, walked in, Crosby looked over and said, well, here come the harmonizers. I used to do a little of that myself. So, by the way, he loosened it up. He recognized us as peers, if you will, as colleagues and welcomed us in. And, you know, Bing Crosby giving you that kind of recognition when you walk in a room doesn't hurt because, as you probably know, Bing started this sing very, very early on uh, as a kid. And uh, so, you know, th- that put us right at ease and all through the entire week, this miraculous week, rubbing shoulders with these legends, Bing was the essence of gracious coolness of hipness. Artie Shaw once said, Bing Crosby was the first hip white man born in America. <laughs> and Louis Armstrong said he thought Bing Crosby was one of the best jazz singers he'd ever heard. He had a, Crosby had a great sense of ad-lib phrasing and repertoire, you know, although he had that loose way of singing anyhow. Sinatra was much more focused and a little more intense. Sinatra was a different kind of performer than Crosby, but together they had that great chemistry and that week, I got to tell you, it was just magical for me. I I still can't believe it had happened.
0: <laughs> well, after the after the uh, the Edsel show, uh, did the four preps or you as an individual did you ever cross paths again with Bing Crosby and Frank? I'm
1: trying to remember, I don't think so. Uh, well, of course, Frank's and a couple of times, once we signed with Capitol, uh, I got a chance because we had the same producer at Capital as as. Uh, as Sinatra did, when Sinatra was down and out, and and Columbia had dropped him, and everybody said it was over, it was our producer at Capitol who went to Capitol brass and said, "Please let me sign Sinatra." And they're saying, "Sinatra, you can it's over." No, he said, "I think I know a way to bring him back. I know this arranger." named Nelson Riddle. He's a trombone player, but he's dying to do some charts. I got a feeling, can I just take a shot with Sinatra? So they signed Sinatra, to which the whole record industry said, oh, please, Sinatra, how yesterday can you get? Well, then came from here to eternity and, you know, high society and witchcraft and all the way. And so I did see Sinatra a couple of times when they would let me sit in at the far corner in the session and
0: listen to him. (laughs) Well, I'm trying to think. I think it was Alan Livingston that actually saved Sinatra's career by signing him and basically ignored everybody else and said, I can make this work, and the yep. rest is history. Good for you. You're absolutely right, Alan Livingston. Yep, that was the guy. Well, that see, guy. I've had the opportunity to actually interview Nancy Olsen Livingston. <laughs> so,
1: oh, yeah, yeah sure. Well, Nancy Olsen was an actress. She's been her... A- Quite active lately. I saw recently on some uh, other show, yeah.
0: Yeah, so you know, so I was able to read that story and of course he retold it in the interview, but you write this song 26 Miles at what? The age of 17? Well, yeah, when I started at least 19, let me do the math. 50. Yeah, 17. <laughs> uh yeah. And, and and what did
1: you did you write it on the ukulele? Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. If I may, let me tell you how I got inspired to write it. Well, I was still living in Chicago. I, like every other kid my age, was a hardcore Chicago Cubs fan. We lived and died with the Cubs. I loved them. So my brother and I would go to the local movie theater when I was 8, nine, ten years old, and we'd watch the movie, and obviously before the feature film, they'd have a newsreel. And in it, they had a sports section. And now, here are our favorite Chicago Cubs on Catalina Island, enjoying the sunshine. And here they are with palm trees in the background, or girls with shorts running around, it's April in Chicago. There's a snowdrift outside. When, when I go out to walk home, these guys are on this sunny paradise called Catalina, and I fell in love with the word Catalina. What a what a wonderful sound! Even then, I I mean, I wrote my first poem when I was forced. So I was thinking of word sounds and rhymes. Now we moved to Hollywood. I'm 17. I'm going to Hollywood High School. We cut school one day. We go to the beach. We're body surfing in the morning. We lay out in the sand all afternoon. And suddenly one guy says look at that over there that's catalina that that's catalina you see i said how far is yeah 25 26 miles 26 miles across the sea let me see you. santa catalina is waiting for me and i went santa catalina the island of romance through okay and that much i had that much and i put it in the drawer and didn't think about it till we had six straight bombs for capital and we're going to get her option picked up we said please capital would you please listen to our little song about catalina because i had been dating a, a girl who was a friend of nancy sinatra's and in the same social club with nancy at university high school out on the west side one night we went to a party of theirs and we sang 26 miles for all the gals there about a week later i run into nancy sinatra in Westwood at a movie line. And she said, when are you going to sing, record that song? I said, what song? That one you sang. So We sang you a dozen songs. Which one? That one, that 20, that, that and she sings it. 26 miles across the sea. We love it. All my friends love it. So now I go in the capital. <laughs> Frank Sinatra's daughter and her whole girl clubs love this song. What are you doing? All right, all right. Well, it was so much a B-side. It was a B-side to the big promo side on the A-side that if you ever look at the ad, you may have seen it in the in the book, the name of the of the A-side is in inch and a half letters, and literally under it, so you had to get a magnified, guys, it said back with 26 miles. So the A-side was a song from the music man. Capital had invested money in the show. They wanted some hits, so they made us record not a very good song, certainly not commercial in the days of Top 40, and, and, and told all the jockeys to play that song. Well, one night, thank goodness, in Hartford, Connecticut, a snowy night in December, a disc played the A-side like he was told to do, and then he had to go to the men's room, so he turned it over to play the B-side while he went up the hall. And when he came back and the song was finishing, the switchboard was ablaze. Thank God. They all said, what, what was that song you just played? Who was that? What, what is that? Thank God he had the ingenuity and the resourcefulness to pick the phone up the next morning and call the Capitol Towers. What are the odds that he'd do that? Number one, luck again, Right. What are the odds that Capitol would answer the call? What are the odds that he'd get a hold of the promotion department? What are the odds that they'd say, oh, yeah, this guy in Hartford says we're wrong. Okay, turn it over. And they did. So, again,
0: luck was smiling on us. Yeah, that was that's almost like Sam Phillips rushing into the Memphis radio station with an uh, with an acetate record of Elvis's song. You know, who would know just these little moments in history yeah. – that uh, well it well it creates history and and just to think as i was reading that here's this dj in hartford connecticut and flips over just so he can go to the restroom and (laughs) gives you gives you guys your very first hit but there's more to the story about 26 miles because that song influenced brian wilson which actually led to the beach boys sound and even Jimmy Buffett honored the song. Well, and he lived the beach life his whole career. How does that make you feel? Oh boy, I remember when a friend of mine called.
1: Hey man, I'm reading Jimmy Buffett's new book. He's got a chapter called. 26. Man, I ran out and got that book. <laughs> I slept with it every night. Uh, I was. It was. I mean, what? What a man to get a compliment from Jimmy Buffett, who I, who I just love to death. That whole. That whole song. It had a, an amazing, ironic, faithful history to it, the, the things that happened. Uh, and I don't know if uh, you know, but, you know, we accidentally stumbled on a new recording technique, which ended up being done by all groups since then. We recorded the song, our four basic tracks. And afterwards, Voyle who had kind of resisted the song, and said, oh, he said, you know, you're, I, there may be something in that Catalina song. I keep finding myself uh, thinking about it. But he said the, the melody's kind of monotonous. doodly, 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 boom, doodly, 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 boom, over and over. The second eight, I'd like a little color change of some kind, something to pick up the ear, a little spice. So what can we do? So Plas Johnson of the Wrecking Crew was packing up his sacks when he overheard Boyle say that and came over and said, you know, I've got a little sister. She's only 16, but she's got this voice. She can sing so high, only an angel can hear her. Maybe, okay, well, let's call her in. What we got to lose? We need something on that second eight. So then we call her in the next day. She's 16, and she's terrified. She's coming in the studio. A. She's not even in the union yet. She's never been in the Capitol Tower, of course. And she's. We all encourage her and say, please just have fun. We're not going to record anything today. We don't even have an engineer here. We're just trying stuff put the earphones on and see what you think. And our producer said, Gwen, her name was Gwen Johnson. It's a light, summery, breezy song. So just think lightweight, summer breeze. We played the first eight. Now we're all leaning forward for the second eight. It starts and she sings a note so impossibly high. I honestly didn't, I I couldn't believe it was a human voice. We all, but it was an octave or two higher than that. We all lean back. Oh my God, that's it. We're all high-fiving and ready We go and hug Gwen. Oh yeah, so come back tomorrow night and let's put it on. So we all meet the next night in the same studio, and now we have an engineer and we're going to record her. She goes in, up to the microphone, which puts on the earphones. We play the first eight. We all lean forward for her wonderful riff. She cannot remember a note she can't remember anything she sang. And we hadn't recorded it, it was just a rehearsal. We're all panicking now. We're all hyperventilating when our orchestra, our, our musical director, Lincoln Mayorga, just gets up without a word in the control room, walks out into the hallway, goes into the studio, walks over to the piano and goes, dip doo doo doodle-doo-doo, ha Eureka, we found it. So she records it. Now, things are so low tech, that when we play it back the next day, her obligato was so loud, you can't hear some of our lyrics. And our producer loved, you know, 40 kilometers in a leaky old boat and all that. She, you, you can't hear. What are we going to do? He said, well, I don't know. I mean, talk about low. Isn't this amazing that it was that low tech? So he says, I got an idea. I know it's strange, but do you guys think you could ever go in and sing over your original four parts? Well, yeah, but what are we singing? Other harmony? No, 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 no. You got to sing the same exact thing you sang the first time really yeah and on the solo sing along with the solo okay so we did it and came up this big wide wash wish washy echoey sound like you're in a cave or something it was just this wonderful come with yet now you got eight voices instead of four it's gonna and now rip doo. doo, it's just the right balance so i mean there again and they sped it up i think a quarter of a turn and and they potchkied with it and our musical director lincoln who went on to make audio history with some of his inventions in the audio world said, I listened to it just before they released. And I thought that is the most fussed over messed with bollocks stuff recording
0: I've ever heard in my life. And evidently the public didn't agree. (laughs) Well, it's amazing because even to this day, I mean, artists stack their voices. um, Oh sure, And of course now everything's done digitally. I love the fact that back in the day, everything was still, done on tape you had to be more creative oh yeah and because by being more creative it creates more stories to tell i mean the way records are recorded now there are no stories to tell but when you're there with tape and you're stacking voices maybe there's a mistake that actually becomes part of the song Yeah, Yeah. that's just history and i love (laughs) that
1: yeah we got pretty good at it after a while but you know The hardest thing is, of course, on the solos, because if you go, it seems so distant, 26 miles, and now you go, it seems so distant, 26, you're not going to, you know, so the way we, we learn how to do it with the earphones on, if you're singing along with your first solo overdubbing, if you hear it by itself, you're not on. If you don't hear it because of what you're singing, that means you're singing right along with it and you're in
0: sync, and that's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, We got pretty good at it after a while. Well, you know, then you had your second hit song, Big Man, which was even a much bigger hit than 26 Miles. Uh, How did that happen? Well, we were on tour to Oklahoma City, uh, and we got
1: a call from our record producer. Uh, What a wonderful man. He was such a, a, a... genuinely wise, learned old man that took the time for these four hotshot teenagers to to mentor us. He said, okay, you're hitting top 10 next week with 26 miles. He said, okay, quit patting yourself on the back. He said, the record business is littered with the corpses of one hit wonders. Anybody can get one hit. Can you get a second hit? That's gonna determine whether or not you're gonna be around for a while. If I were you, I'd quit patting myself on the back and get to work on a follow-up song. So that night, we were appearing at an amusement park called Spring Lake Amusement Park. And after the show, all the cute girls would gather around backstage. And if you were lucky, you could talk four or five of them over joining you with the local diner for a cheeseburger and a malt. I mean, really racy rock and roll stuff, you know. You might get a hug at the end of the evening. That was about it. But that was what we did. It was fun to have all these people fawning over us, these cute girls. And So this night, Glenn and I decided to discipline ourselves. And as our bandmates walked off, off to the diner with these cute girls, we got in the car and went back to the motel. It's a Capri Motel in Oklahoma City and we couldn't figure out whether to work on the song, a follow up song in my room or his room. And we realized I was in room 126. So that made the decision. We went to 126, Now we sit down, we get our guitars out and somebody, we still can't remember who said, there's an expression now, big man, he's a big man on campus. Maybe we could do something with that big man expression. So right away, we started to think big man. How about big man, little boy, big man, big woman, little man, little woman, big man, something a, a boy, boy, man, some kind of, well, let's work on it. Let's chew on it. So we began writing the song and somewhere along the line, we came, I was a big man, but boy, you ought to see me now. And it just made perfect sense. And uh, that piano introduction, which to me is one of the most iconic in all of Top 40, that rumbling piano intro, again, here we go, it was, lucky. It was a lucky accident how we got that rumbly piano sound. It, it, you know, Everything was, uh, all the stars were properly aligned for that song.
0: Yeah, I went on Spotify and with 26 Miles, uh, it's been listened to about a, a million and a half times, and then I look down and I see Big Man and it's like 86 million plays. Yeah. And you know, but the Four Preps, if you mention the Four Preps to somebody, people seem to bring up 26 Miles before they bring up Big Man. Why is that? It's called our signature song and I that's a good question. I don't know why Big Man did outsell
1: it worldwide and it was a big hit in England. Uh, I once had a very famous songwriter when I was just starting out as a teenager give me some wonderful advice. It wasn't why I wrote this song, but it happened to coincide with his advice. He said, if you can write a song about a place and if it's a place people love, New York, New York, I left my heart, Paris and If you write a song about a place that people love, the song never goes away because the place never goes away. People's affection for it never goes away. Well, when I'm traveling and I find a bellhop at a hotel in Bangkok, has heard, 26 miles, and an airline pilot in Brussels has a drink at the bar with me and says, oh, yeah, I live on Catalina. I can't go anywhere in this world without mentioning Catalina. They start to sing your bloody song, you know. So I think the fact that it was, you know, identified with an island that people were enormously fond of and over the years of we did a thing this last weekend over there, a fundraiser for their beautiful museum. And I'm telling you, I mean, our boats come in with thousands of people. The first year after the song hit, they had a million visitors, which is 10 times what they'd ever experienced. So I think the reason it's more identified is that more people around the world know that song and know what it represents and and remember it fondly. Uh, there's some wonderful stories I share in a book about over the years, what it's meant in some people's lives, including a wonderful hundred and two year old man, I'm sure you remember that story. Yes. Who, as he was in his final hours, it was always been his favorite song, and as he was in his final hours, his daughter got twenty six miles on the cell phone and held it up to his ears as he was breathing his last, and he died with a smile on his face. He, he kind of helped him usher his way out into the final, the final cruise.
0: Well, it's like I always say, music makes memories, and but the Four Preps uh, did a lot of American bandstand shows. Uh, did your friendship with Dick Clark lead you into television work later in your career? No, it really didn't have anything to do with it.
1: It was, uh, it was a total other, again, lucky coincidence that that happened for me. But uh, we, we knew Dick, and once he moved the show out of here, we saw him a lot, and we saw him at parties. And he had a beautiful place out in Malibu now, and then we'd go out there and enjoy the beach and enjoy Dick. Uh, no, but the 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 network executive saying that was <laughs> that was a whole other weird thing that happened to me. Somebody once said, "You know what you are? You're the Forrest Gump of show business. You get dropped in the middle of all these things." I, they, they may be right.
0: <laughs> I think so. Now, how did all the 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 pranking of the four preps and Dick Clark actually begin? Uh,
1: we did a show this uh, with him, the Saturday Night Beachfront Show, at a remote broadcast up in Binghamton, New York. It was a brand new ABC affiliated station. So we went up to do a remote of the show from there out in the parking lot next to the the studio facilities. And the parking lot at the one end had a a mud cliff that went down to a river below. And after we did our spot on the show, I was looking around for something mischief to get into. So the next thing as a commercial, Dick says, we'll be back right after these commercial words. He hears, Mr. Clark, Mr. Clark. I'm doing my Jerry Lewis, right? And I come running up to him with a big wet dead fish in my hand look what i found look what i found well tip was a very cool unflappable guy so he went right along. oh say that's quite a thing we could have that for dinner we we're doing little shtick and now the stage manager says five four three so i split out of camera range and we went back to the show well that started it we didn't hear anything from dick after i did that we thought he's gonna get back at us for something he never did so he talks about it in his book rock roll and remember he said one day my secretary calls this is dick saying this from down in our office downstairs and said, you better get down here. You got a package that's a little weird. He said, I went down and as it was wrapped in brown paper, as we began to peel the paper off, the smell got worse and worse and worse. He said, finally, I opened it and pulled out and it was an enormous dead fish. It said, "With, with the compliments of the four preps from the blue waters of the Pacific. So he said, you know, we we had to fumigate the office. It took some time to get it back to normal. Well, of course, he said. At that point, I said, I'm getting even with these clowns. So one way or the other. Next time we did the Beach Nut Show, we did the we did down by the station, and we opened up stage. And as the instrumental break is occurring at the end of the first chorus, we'd walk down stage to the X on the floor and do the rest of the song down there. We do the first half. We're walking down as we get closer and closer to the X. There's no x there it's a huge pile of fake dog vomit on our spot well of course we all started to crack up we lose our part in the, in the lip sync and i've had people ask me who watched that tape on youtube what are you guys laughing at the second course when you come around back into the shot you're all breaking up what was that about well i was breaking up. <laughs> and of course dick says in his book we're off camera you know laughing at our, ourselves to death at what these guys are dealing with. So he got even with us live, live on television. A wonderful guy. So much sharper, so much hipper, so much edgier than people thought. They thought him as kind of a milquetoast guy. And he was a nice, edgy sense of humor. He, I remember one time I was with him and he uh, he was trying to read a contract and he put his glasses on. He said he held the glasses. He says middle age and he put his glasses on. And he thought for his middle age. How many people do you know who are 108 you know because he was 54 at the time he had a great sense of humor a great self-deprecating he never took himself too seriously one of the things that bugs me the most about some celebrities they take themselves so seriously some of them even refer to themselves in the third person no no philip jones would never sing a song like that he wasn't like that at all he was down to earth and you gave him tip for tap. boy, you threw him a one liner. He'd zing it
0: right back. <laughs> well, it sounds like to me that Dick Clark never took his own press clippings seriously, like some celebrities do. And oh. uh, and that's probably what's so, what's so endearing about Dick Clark. And of course, you know, he never aged. And no. uh, you know, I think he. You know, and I think we can almost say that about um, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. So, uh, i know. there's hope for everyone
1: <laughs> age though He's, he looks
0: a little worse than dick did the- <laughs> exactly now i know that uh yeah because in the book the four preps you except for one y'all all got drafted uh how did that how did the group manage to stay together well you know it's an interesting thing because i've
1: uh, Over the years, met all the guys from all the other groups and a lot of them would have down flat out fist fights. I don't think any of us ever raised our voices to each other. I'm not sure if we didn't want to blow it because we were all so desperate to make it. You know, we were for low income families. I mean, my dad's salary was one hundred and forty five dollars a week. Uh, Glenn was uh, being raised by his widowed mother, uh, who was a waitress at night in a restaurant on sunset marv our high tenor was an orphan he was being raised by his disabled grandmother our base and cop had two parents both of them had full-time jobs his dad had an extra job on weekends to make ends meet so we were so determined to make it that we i don't think we felt we could afford to get in, in, mad at each other i mean we had little you know, exchanges now and then. Well, I think it sounds better than that. I mean, we would, in those days, You'd if you're going to do a background whiff and it was do bop to webop. do, bop, do we bop, is that better than do-bop, do-bop, do bop we? You know, you'd have big arguments about that, but that was about as tense as it ever got. We never, we never got angry, and I think it was because we were desperate to hold on to what we got. And we'd seen enough groups, you know, break up because of temperament and egos, and we were determined not to have that happen.
0: Well, here are the four preps. You you have two hit songs. Uh, you're selling million, millions of copies of these records. Uh, been on television numerous times. Been in a feature film. But then you disbanded in 1969. What was the circumstances behind that decision? Um,
1: first of all, uh, two major factors played into that, other than the fact that each of us by then was establishing some career successes on our own ed was writing and producing songs for people and working with fleetwood mac and pink floyd and so forth uh, den was uh, glenn was selling scripts one after another the universal It was a matter of time before he'd come after him to be a producer so we were all looking i was doing voiceovers at disney i did jungle book and a bunch of disney films as Animal voices and so forth. Marb was uh, already investing in the stock market very heavily and doing very well with that. He was a commodities broker. He would sell shiploads of grain from, you know, China to Korea or whatever. So we were already on the way. But the two the, the coup de gras were two things. First of all, Motown, and suddenly everybody was dancing to Motown. And the second thing was the British invasion. But when the British invasion started, we had, by then, as I'm sure you know, being familiar with our our act, we had done a lot lot of satire. We'd we'd parody granny dresses and topless bathing suits and Mother Teresa and cannabis and campus cops. We'd we'd do a funny song about anything that was a trend or a fad that was popular. So when the Beatles came along, Beatlemania, talk about a natural. So we wrote a song called A Letter to the Beatles. A cute little song about a girl that writes a love letter to the Beatles says I love you. And they write her back and say, that's all fine. Thank you. Send 25 cents for an autograph picture. It was kidding the marketing phenomenon, the juggernaut called Beatlemania. It comes out. Now, we hadn't had a hit for two, almost three years. And it is first week. It's number 80 on the top 100 with a bullet. Everybody's saying, "Well, the preps are back. They're edgy parodies. Put them on the charts again. Here we go, Kidding the Beatles, having fun with them, and it's gonna scream up the charts." But we're out touring New Orleans. We get a call from our these fateful calls on the road from our producer at the Capitol Towers. and uh, yeah, uh, we got a call yesterday from Brian Epstein, and he uh, he's not happy with the record, uh, you guys. He's not. He doesn't think it puts the Beatles in a good light." i'm convinced to this day that the beatles never heard it i i think with his edgy sense of humor lennon and mccartney i think they would have thought it was a riot but and i you know i guess looking at it as objectively as i can i can see where it probably didn't put them in the most favorable light it made them seem like money grubbers send 25 cents for a card but you know everybody thought it was funny and they knew us and thought it was good-natured and well-intentioned and why pull it off the market well after Brian made that phone call, within 24 hours, there was a cease and desist order to every radio station, do not play the record. It was removed from the shelves of all retail outlets. And a month later, I got a letter from a woman in Australia. She was a secretary at the Sydney Capital Record Plant. She came back from lunch one day with her fellow secretaries. They asked them to report down to the basement. She went down in her high heels and her skirt and when they walked into the basement, they were each handled sledgehammers, handed sledgehammers. And there on the floor were 2,045 copies of our letter to the Beatles record. And they spent the afternoon smashing them to the smithereens. So no one could dare play that record. Uh, she had written me because she said, we all loved you so much. We were all crying the whole time we were breaking your record. And she said, I snuck a copy out under my skirt. Would you like me to send it
0: to you? <laughs> Thank you. I, I have copies. That's very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because songs like that really worked back in the day. But I think if I remember correctly, it was very big with Motown. You would have an, you would have an artist or, or a group do a song, and then you would have another artist or a group write a song in a way that was battling with that particular song or that subject matter. And it was kind of going back and forth, and it was all in fun. And, uh, but like they said in the book, I believe that the letter uh, to the Beatles would have been a massive hit. And I don't think the Beatles would have cared. And probably Ringo probably the biggest, he had the biggest laugh over it.
1: I I think you're absolutely right. I would like to think that, but uh, anyhow, you know, and we didn't want to end up playing a, a bowling alley in Bakersfield. You know, we'd seen that happen to groups and thank goodness and it's interesting, when we first signed with Mel Shower, that wonderful wizened manager of ours, he said to me early on in our relationship, I've got to tell you something, what is going to make you guys successful is what's going to break you up ultimately. And I said, what's that? He said, I have never in my life met four more driven, ambitious guys than the four of you. And sooner or later, you're going to all go your own ways and seek your own successes. And he said, so be prepared for that. And like he was about everything else, he was right about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. And uh, but for you know, when was the last time that the four original members actually sang together? Uh, I guess it would be
1: 1969, uh, the original four. And then 20 years later in 1989, we reformed the group. Ed Cobb of the Preps and I formed, reformed it. But the original members were not in. Not, neither Glenn nor Mar participated in that second version of the group. So the original four, the last time was 1969 uh, before we uh, said goodbye. Amicably, we all loved each other and thought we had a great ride. And then years later, as old duffers, we'd get together and laugh about the adventures we share, but it was time to move on. And we all knew that. And thank God we
0: were able to move on to successful other careers. Well, I was on your website and watched the video of the 1977 billboard awards. And (laughs) I, and I thought it was ironic and iconic that none other than the Bee Gees introduced the four preps. And I thought (laughs) here we have four guys that have incredible harmony introduced by a trio of brothers who are probably best known for some of the best harmony ever done in music. So yep. I thought that was, I it had a cool factor to me.
1: Oh, I, I mean, you know, my daughters were in their teens when we did that show and I brought them in to see the show and we were in a bus out in the parking lot. Ed Cobb had a big bus he'd, he'd used for tours. And they walked in and there was Peter Frampton and Chris Christopherson and the Bee Gees, You know, my two daughters to this day say, like, I remember so well walking in that bus, I couldn't believe it, I couldn't believe it. And the interesting thing, always struck me ironic, at the end of the show, we all gathered on stage, And Bing Crosby had just recently passed away, and they wanted to do a tribute to him at the end. So they said, why don't we all just sing White Christmas? I mean, all these great, massive, you know, 30 famous recording giants. And guess what? The Bee Gees didn't know the song. We had to teach the Bee Gees White Christmas for the (laughs) finale. I don't know why that strikes me so funny and strange, but I thought the whole world knew White Christmas. They didn't, so we taught that it. That is
0: funny, but um, there is so you have so much history. Like I said, you could write a sequel and then a, a third book with the life that you lived. And I was doing some research, and you wrote a song with Harry Middlebrooks called What Would I Do Without My Music? So, I was on your website scanning down the videos, and all of a sudden, I see the song, and it's sung by my good friend T.G. Shepard, who was also a very close friend of Elvis Presley, and I understand that Elvis was supposed to record that song right before he died. How did Elvis get a hold of that song? well when in my
1: swinging bachelor days before i got married i i had a torrid affair with a wonderful chorus girl from reno god just beautiful she was of all things she was evil knievel's younger sister i i don't know what that had to do with anything but it's sort of an interesting side note so she and i were really hung up on each other i'm a young guy at 19 20 years old i'm not married we know but why not but our world's drifted apart after we met in reno and had that you know, exchange for a while. Years later, she she looked me up and said, uh, oh, I know what it was. We were performing at a nightclub in LA, and there she was in the audience. I hadn't seen her in 15 years. So, I, you know, I went over after the show, and by now, I had been married and divorced, and I would love to have picked up with her we left off, but we couldn't. She was on the way to Hawaii with her squeeze, Elvis Presley. She was one of his three or four girlfriends. And the, one of the strange things about Elvis was all the women, his you know groupies looked like Priscilla, looked like his wife. And this gal that I'm, I'm talking about looked very much like Priscilla and she was his main squeeze. Well, she had stopped with her girlfriend in LA to see our show uh, before she went on to Hawaii with Elvis to do the legendary special in Hawaii. They said, oh, Elvis, wow, wow, Well, wow. Now, a couple of months later, I write this song and I'm thinking, Elvis, wait a minute, I got an into Elvis, I know Loretta, I'll call Loretta. I called her, she's very savvy. She's been around show business her whole life, so she really knows a good song. I read her the lyrics and what would I do without my music? She said, oh, I got to show this to Elvis. Can I show it to Elvis? Oh yeah, I guess i will let you show it to Elvis. So I sent her a demo. She called a couple of weeks later and said, Elvis loves the song, he's going to record it, he's going to do it with a black gospel choir. He feels it could be for him what my way was for Sinatra, kind of his identify his his ID song. And she's. I said, "You're not kidding me. You're not putting this out, are you?" She says, "Just a minute." Next voice on the phone is Elvis. Yes, sir. I like your song very much, and I'm going to record it. you, you, you come on, Bella. You're you're a gabby guy. Think of something to say. <laughs> That's very nice. <laughs> I muttered a few words and he got off the phone Loretta got back on and wow can you believe this I can't thank you enough six months later of course I get the phone call on the day he died from a tearful Loretta saying he's gone he's gone we lost him Uh, and it was 13 days before his record his recording session had been scheduled to record the song well I've heard from people, I've never been to Graceland, but I've been told by people that have toured there that the sheet music and demo record are on the table somewhere in, in in the Graceland house.
0: I'm going to have to check that out the next time I go. Yeah. Do you, well, have you been to Graceland? Oh, yeah. I've been twice. It, it's it's worth the trip. Wow. It is worth so that, that was my close brush.
1: with, and, and as I said in the book, if he had recorded it, I would be right. I wouldn't be writing this from Woodland Hills, California. I'd be writing it from the south of France. Thank you very much. I mean, can you imagine if it had been his last recording, what it would have meant to the world and to him? But you know, that's a songwriter's life. I can't tell how many times you've heard so-and-so is going to record
0: it, and the next thing you know, it doesn't happen. So, But you know what? Think about the title of the song. What would I do without my music? And that's all Elvis lived for. He hated his movies, but he loved music and that would have been an absolute truly fitting end to elvis because that and i could actually hear him singing that song i can too i know i'm I'm yeah you hear anybody else singing and tg did
1: a a great recording i love his more than anybody else has recorded it although the most moving part for me was how many high school and college choral groups around the world something like 70 now have recorded or performed the song many of them it's their theme song for their graduating class or their their choir uh so you know when i wrote this song david somerville who's a very dear friend of mine saw that lyric and said man you've touched on a universal chord and you know how i got the idea of the song if you read the
0: book uh, do you remember that uh, i'm trying to remember because i was because i have i've read the whole book but there was just stories after stories but you tell us tell tell us uh by then, the preps had disbanded, and I was producing television. I was
1: producing among other things a show named name that tune and I was working eighteen hours a day. I'd just gone through a divorce, and I was really kind of down and out and I was living in this little bachelor's quarters while you know I divorce got handled. but I'm making a lot of money producing television shows, but i'm 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 missing music at least name that tune as a game show put me close to music. We had a great band, and Kathy Lee Gifford was our singer and so forth but I missed it, so on the way home one night, I didn't want to get to that miserable little bachelor's flat any sooner than I had to, so I stopped at Denny's to get something to eat, and I had Billboard Magazine, which I still read, even though I wasn't recording anymore, and I was reading along, and this waitress came over, she was exhausted, the middle-aged, came shuffling over, and you could tell she'd had a hard day, she said, hi, honey, and I said, hi, she said, oh, are you in the record business? And I said, well, I, I, I used to be, used to be, I mean, the words, choked me I used to be she said oh you know something honey I work so hard and I get home late at night after the late shift and my old man's falling asleep and the lazy boy in front of the television and I'm just aching I'm so tired I go into the bedroom I slip off my shoes I lie in the bed and put on my earphones and I listen to Perry Como and Eddie Fisher and Nat King Cole and all I can think of is what would I do without my music I said excuse me may I borrow your pen for a moment? I took her pen and I wrote it. I still have it on the front of the billboard. I wrote, what would I do without my music? And I said, can I have my sandwich to go, please? I need to get home and do some work. So she gave me a grilled cheese to go. I went home and I spent the night pouring my heart out in this lyric. One of the lines is, I'm a long, long way from losing if I try. And that's where I was at this point in my life. Yeah, I was making money again, but so what my life was in shambles. So it really came from my heart, more than probably any song I've ever written with the possible exception of Troublemaker for Willie Nelson. But that's how the song came into being. And I always, <laughs> my second book is called Fabulous Unknowns. I want to write a book in tribute to all the people in my life and career who affected my life. And I've never, have never been heard of. And that waitress would be number one on the list along with the disc jockey in Hartford, Connecticut. Thank you very much. So. That's how I got the idea for the song, and it's the song closest to my heart, because as you know, as a a lover of music, it's what gets us through the times, when they're not all that great.
0: That's right. And I always tell my my viewers and my listeners, it's music that makes memories, and it's probably one of my favorite things to do is to talk to recording artists, because there's so many stories to tell. Yeah, And and that's what makes songs great. But ladies and gentlemen, there's something else you may not know about Bruce Bellin. And I'm going to have uh-uh. you kind of tell the quick story here because you wrote songs for Disney, especially the Mickey Mouse Club. And I was impressed by the story in which you and another gentleman wrote 10 songs over a weekend that had to be production ready by Monday, Monday morning. How did you pull that off? <laughs> Uh, a
1: lot of Snickers bars for for, for energy, uh, very little sleep. It was great fun, though. I mean, what happens, you know, I'm sure you've been in a situation where you're so exhausted, and you're trying to so you just get goofy. You know, so I'm making up all these absurd song titles. We're roaring with laughter. Oh, my God. This thing will never go for that. But we wrote, um, we just grabbed ideas out of the air. So we wrote, have you ever thanked your thumb? Have you made your thumb your chum? not to do so would be dumb. So you better thank your thumb. You couldn't hitchhike without your thumb. You couldn't give thumbs up. And we wrote, uh, I love I songs hickory style. Give me a hickory flavor. To my, and we wrote one call, you're really terrific. It was, it was putting positivity into young people. Uh, you're really terrific to be more specific. You're every special word there is to speak. Did the thought ever strike you? There's not another like you. You're the only you there is. You're one of a kind. Gee whiz. You're really terrific. To be more specific, you're every special word there is to speak. and It is you that put the you into unique. Well, of course, Mickey Mouse, they love that. It was a song with a message of positivity and self-belief and all. So... I can't think of any other song. I'm trying to think. I don't know. They, you know, they ended up. They do that. They over-order. We need ten songs. They ended up shooting about six of them. You know, but anyhow, we we cranked them out. We got.
0: You're great. I can't believe how you
1: remember all these
0: things. You well, read the Well, what? It, well, the biggest honor for me interviewing you is because of you. I now have a cool factor because. Um, I I text my television director yesterday and I said, hey, you're not going to believe this, but I'm interviewing Bruce Bellin. And and so, ladies and gentlemen, one of the most famous comedy films of all time is National Lampoon's Vacation. And guess who wrote the Marty Moose song? So, <laughs> Bruce, you wrote that song, and and my director is texting me back, and he's like, Oh my gosh! Are you kidding me? And uh, and so you make now I'm the coolest guy in the room <laughs> 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 for knowing
1: you. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny. I got a I got a son-in-law who a son-in-law a stepson I should say who I probably was 18 or 19 at the time that happened. And despite all the big man and twenty 20s I didn't mean a whole lot to him. But that I wrote the song and national. And now we have something to tell his friends. You know how much that did? Yeah, that song. <laughs> We got a call late at night, and they needed the song the next morning for, to shoot it. I mean, you got a multi-million-dollar production, and somehow the the team that they had assigned to write the Marty Moose theme had bombed. They written something that they did wasn't acceptable. Now it was the night before the shoot. What do they do? Somehow the studio had gotten word that my partner at the time and I. We're fast riders. You know, we cranked out 10 songs after all. So they called us about 10 o'clock at night and said, we need a song for the scene. It's Marty Moose. They're heading for the amusement park. We're all in a good mood. They're going to sing the Mickey Mouse theme sideways. That's what we want. So, oh, okay. Can you do that? Yeah, yeah, we can do that. He said, okay, one, one hitch. What? We need it at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Oh, okay. So we stayed up all night. As I say, we devoured Snickers, drank a lot of coffee, trying to keep our energy up. And at first of all, we started, again, getting slap happy with, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning. We haven't gotten a song yet. We got five hours to get it to Paramount. But we finally got it done. It was Warner Brothers, actually. And by six in the morning, we had, uh, who's the moosiest moose of all, Marty Moose, who's the star of our favorite show, Marty Moose. (laughs) You two grown men in our office in Hollywood at four o'clock in the morning singing the Marty Moose theme. You can't make that
0: stuff up. You know. Well, no. What What's even funnier is you worked for Walt Disney and then here you are writing a song about a movie doing a parody of Disneyland. Of Disneyland. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can't <laughs> write that stuff. I mean, I mean, that's like, that's just movie making and and making music all happening at the same time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know,
1: let's face it, things happen to you living in Hollywood, as we do, that wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't get that phone call if you lived in Evanston, Illinois. I mean, so much of it was being in the right place. I, I, Again, unsung heroes. I'd sure like to find out who told that guy at Warner Brothers, hey, I know two guys that can can write this song for you're you in the jam you need to by tomorrow morning call these two guys they can do it because when he called he said all right they tell me you guys are hot shots you can crank stuff out pretty fast here's my here's my situation so well, uh,
0: you know <laughs> i was i was going through your website because there's just so much there and ladies and gentlemen and if you want to just be in awe of bruce's background and all of the things that he's done the, the people he's met uh, i've had the opportunity the honor actually to interview both Wink Martindale and Pat Boone, um, and I know, and I saw the photo uh, of both of them uh, with you. Um, you're amazing. Yeah, which, what, and I love them both because they're. I mean, Wink can tell stories, like the best of them, and Pat has more stories than I think the Bible has chapters. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're right. You're right. But, you And by seeing that photo, it kind of popped, the question kind of popped into my head. I mean, how did you become a TV executive? Ha! Well, after the Four Preps disbanded in 69, the last
1: year of the original Four Preps career, Ed Cobb had left the group and was replaced by David Somerville, lead singer of the Diamonds, for many years. He and I uh, were in the preps for that last year. and Immediately on stage, we started the form of chemistry that was really magical, and our agents, these two guys, Parencio and Ned Tannen, who'd seen us through from the start, said, You two guys, the Smothers Brothers are in trouble. CBS wants to replace them. You guys, I'm telling you, you could do it. So we formed Belland and Somerville, and we performed for several years as we toured with Mancini and Johnny Mathis and Brazil 66 and Glenn Campbell, Dion Warwick. But uh, then, Ed. Uh, David started to make some records on his own with his girlfriend at the time I was doing voiceovers and stuff. So we were sort of drifting apart a bit and weren't working nearly as much as we had been. And I started, I was, I wrote a lot of freelance advertising for years for Coca-Cola and, and Levi and uh, Volkswagen, United Airlines. Well Chevrolet came to me and wanted a youth oriented television campaign to sell their Chevys. for college age kids having done hundreds of college concerts with the preps they figured i knew the market and their mentality so i wrote a bunch of off off the wall they said we want something funny and crazy stan freeberg was very hot at the time with his funny satirical commercials which i i love so i wrote where i had pitches done by four famous people to buy a chevrolet uh lady godiva napoleon general custer and uh, 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 Attila the Hun. You can always count on Attila the Hun for great laughs, you know? So we wrote these commercials, and I was directing them at NBC with a a comedy troupe called The Ace Trucking Company, which, among others, had a guy named Fred Willard in it, who is one of the great comic actors of all time uh, in later years. So I'm directing this commercial for Chevrolet at NBC, and I'm in the commissary one afternoon having lunch, and a friend I know, the Top 40 Disc Jockey, Named Jim McCrell, who I'd mentioned, lives in Houston now. Was there uh, emceeing one of his game shows. And on a lunch break, I ran into him. I had known him for years because he used to be Henry Mancini's promotion man. So we knew each other from that tour. He said, "What are you doing here?" I said, "I'm directing." He said, "What are you up to these days?" I said, "Well, you know, I'm kind of footloose and looking around." He introduced me to an executive in the commissary with whom he was having lunch that day, who said to me, "Hmm, with your background, you've written and directed. If you ever think uh, you'd want to get into the..." television program when we got a position we're looking for somebody uh, we'd love to talk to you about it well of course i had my resume on his desk the next morning i got called in for an interview i was writing for this ad agency and i was on staff there so i had to make up an excuse to leave one afternoon to go over to nbc for my interview so i said i, I chipped the tooth and I, I, I just called the dentist if i can get over there right now he can he can fix my tooth so you can't. So Oh, yeah, fine, fine, yeah, if I go, go get it fixed. I run down, get in my car, I drive to NBC Burbank, put on a suit and tie in the parking lot and go in and get my interview. And I guess I said the right thing and did the right thing because next thing I know I was director of <laughs> a daytime program development for,
0: for NBC. <laughs> well, what are some of the shows that you produced? Because you said Name That Tune was one of them. Well, I was the executive in charge of production for Hollywood
1: Squares for days of our lives. I was part of the team that developed Wheel of Fortune when Merv brought us the idea. Uh, I produced Name That Tune, uh, uh, Cruiser Consequences. Uh, I, somebody did the math recently and found out I, did, I produced about a thousand, a thousand hours of television. Cause you know, game shows run five days a week and they don't do repeats. So all summer they do new shows. So yeah, it added up to uh,
0: over a thousand hours of, of t- TV entertainment. <laughs> Wow. Well, I have to ask you one last important question. And with such a storied career like yours, is there one memory or a moment that you cherish the most?
1: Wonderful. what a great question. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the four peps per se, but this gentleman at Disney with whom I wrote all those songs We were called on to write the official anthem of the bicentennial of the constitutional, of the Constitution. We wrote a song. They wanted it to emphasize the immigrant nature of our population coming from all over the world. So we wrote a song called So Many Voices Sing America's Song. We come from everywhere, but we all sing the same song. We're all Americans and we're all in tune with democracy. It became the official anthem of the Bicentennial. It was performed at two presidential inaugurations, George H.W. Bush and uh, Clinton, Bill Clinton's inauguration by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And we got invited, my writing partner and I, to Mount Rushmore. It had never been dedicated. Now, after the much-delayed dedication, they were going to dedicate it with George H.W. Bush in attendance, the Marine Chorus, the United States Air Force Band, and the whole thing at Mount Rushmore. So we fly to Mount Rushmore and there I am sitting, I hope I can get through this without choking up. That's all right. I'm sitting in the front row about 10 feet from President George H.W. Bush. And above me are these four guys, you probably know, up on Mount Rushmore and there's the Air Force Band and there's the Mormon Choir and there's, and they start to sing, we come from everywhere, we're called Americans from every different shore. But what matters more is we're Americans, and they start to sing my song, and all I to think it was my mob who had me writing poems when I was four years of age. I, my first poem was, here we go, through the snow. No, 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 no. Now I got so many voices, and as they're singing it, they timed it perfectly. Air Force One flies over about a thousand feet over our heads with a roar, and everybody just slumped. It was such a moment. And I guess if I had to recall anyone that just gripped me, there I am, not far from a president with Mount Rushmore. You know, it, it doesn't get any better than that. And and one of the guests on the show, because it was televised on NBC, was Jimmy Stewart. My whole goal in being there was to meet Jimmy Stewart. And it was such a madhouse during the show that I didn't meet him. Now, my wife and I go back after the show to the lodge where we're staying, the Mount Rushmore Lodge. We park in the parking lot. We go up to the back door. and I take my room key, and I can't get it to fit in the lock. It won't open the door. It's late at night. We're tired. We want to go to our rooms. All of a sudden, uh, a hand reaches in from alongside me. and says, here, let me try mine. It's a woman's voice. And she ticks her key in and opens as easy as can be. She pulls the door open. So I said, gee, you know, you didn't have to make it look that easy, did you? And I hear a voice behind me say, yeah, well, uh, that, 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 that's what they do. Women, they, they, they make it look easy. And I turn around and it's General Jimmy Stewart about two feet behind me. Ha! Mr. Stewart. Well, of course, I gushed in on you. And, you know, I've learned enough by then to say to celebrities, your body of work, thank you for what you've how you've enriched my life. Well, oh, thank you. very. I mean, he couldn't have been nicer. He obviously wanted to go to bed, but he made small talk for a minute. We walked up the hall a bit, and then he went to his room, and I went to mine. So I even got the capper after all that with Mount Rushmore shaking Jimmy Stewart's hand to me, who was the most genuine World War II hero of any of the celebrities from Hollywood. He flew 28 combat missions over Nazi Germany, 28. John Wayne is called the hero of our nation. Do you know what branch of the service he served in? I um, you know cannot me? remember. None. He never None. was. He never served a day of military duty. And he's America's hero. And Jimmy Stewart, who had terrible, they called it shell shock in those days uh, after 20 bomber missions with the, you know, the flak all around you and barely making it back and seeing friends who didn't make it back. And in fact, when he got out, he had very serious, depression and paranoia problems. Uh, I never knew this until my editor told me about it when he was editing the book. And uh, one of the reasons they picked him to play in It's a Wonderful Life, this man who was depressed and, and, and desolate and down downhearted because they felt with his background and experience that he could do a, a convincing job. So... That was my most I guess one of my most memorable not bad standing
0: in the Sinatra too. That's memorable, but I think Mount Rushmore probably takes it. I, I think the magnitude of Mount Rushmore and you writing the song and the president being there and all of that, I think it is a crowning moment for your career. And you bring up Jimmy Stewart being in It's a Wonderful Life and and a lot of people don't know the police officer in the film was played by none other than Ward Bond, and that's my name.
1: <laughs> I was good. Were you related to that Ward Bond?
0: No, I was not. my My father's name was Howard, and all they did was take the H O off, and and I'm Ward Bond. I even know where his star is on the Hollywood Walk of Fame because it's in front of Grauman's Chinese Theater. Because <laughs> they don't call it Grauman's anymore, but still, I still call it that. When I saw your name, when when Myrla sent it to me, I thought, is he still
1: around doing his show? Like, that Ward Bond must be 104 by now, but
0: it's this Ward Bond. <laughs> well, and, and not only that, you know, Ward Bond was in a ton of the John Wayne movies because they were best friends. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact,
1: John Wayne later in his life supported many of the guys that were in his movies that were down on their luck and stuff. He was known for his generosity to his buddies.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I mean, I believe if I remember correctly, he bought Ward Bond a white nineteen fifty three or a nineteen fifty four white Corvette with red interior. I actually saw the picture of it once. so so yeah, he 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 really blessed his friends, but Bruce, I'm blessed to have the opportunity to talk a little tiny bit of your history. Like I said, you have more volumes to write, and you need to write them. Get them published so you can come back, and we can talk some more. But, ladies and gentlemen, I'd love to. Well, I'd love to
1: Boy, talking to guys like you who have done their homework, what a what a, what a what a thrill. This has just been
0: a great delight. Thank you, Ward, so much for, uh, for inviting me. Well, you're absolutely welcome, and ladies and gentlemen, you have got to get a copy of Bruce Bellin's memoir, Icon's, Idols and Idiots of Hollywood, My Adventures in America's First Boy Band. Now, you need to head over to BruceBellin.com, read more of his story, watch some of the videos, watch the four preps, the list goes on. If If you are a lover of music, if you are a lover of Hollywood and film and television like I am, go to brucebellin.com and your wish will come true about anything that you ever want to know. But Bruce, you are, you know, I'm going to call you an American legend because you are, you <laughs> are. And, 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 and if anybody wants to dispute that, they're going to have to come talk to me about that. <laughs> By the way, the,
1: the book is available on Amazon. I'm told I'm supposed to say that. I don't know what that means because I don't Amazon, but my wife sure does. Uh, so if you get a chance, check it out. That would be great. Ward, I hope we can do this again. And I, I, as I say, uh, guys like me are indebted to guys like you who continue to promote the legacy of, of that wonderful era of the 50s and what we were lucky enough to be part of. You're a, you're a class act, buddy, and I, I thank
0: you so much for including me in it. Well, you are very, very welcome. And ladies and gentlemen, I hope all of you watching or listening enjoyed my conversation with the legend himself, Bruce Bellin. I want to thank all of you for watching. And as for me, I'll see you next time.